Let's stand now and turn again to the Gospel of John, and we're in chapter 21. is the word of the Lord, it is eternally true, John 21 at verse 15. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved. Because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this record of the interaction between Jesus and the Apostle Peter in the sight of the other apostles. And Lord, I pray that it would prove once again, as your word always is, profitable to us. And so bless every one of our thoughts and meditations. May they be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Be seated. So we're back at breakfast with Jesus, the resurrected Jesus and the apostles. And they're seated on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. They sat down to eat together, and Jesus already had some uh, fish cooking on the the charcoal and uh, cooking over the fire. And Peter, you remember, dove into the lake to swim to shore when he finally realized that this is not some dude. This is the dude, right? This is Jesus. This is the Son of God. And now Jesus... After they eat breakfast, you know, after they've, they've put down the nourishments and had some conversation, now Jesus turns to Peter and gets to work on him. I mean, focusing, lasering in on Peter. The others, along with Peter himself, have already been restored to their work by Jesus announcing his peace upon them, right, in the the previous part of chapter 21. And so there's been this restoration that's happened. 
But the denial of Peter, the denial of Peter requires more thorough work in the soul of Peter. And Jesus does that work here by asking Peter to answer three very similar questions. It's a repetition of the same question three times. He is, he is undoubtedly putting the Apostle Peter on the spot. Okay, Peter's sin requires a deeper restoration and therefore it requiring a deeper restoration requires a deeper surgery. He's He's got to have this dealt with in a deeper way. Now, raise your hand if you like to be put on the spot <laughs> publicly. No one raised their hand. Let it be known. Some of us have learned the craft of, you know, being so sensitive that we'll never ever put anybody else on the spot, right? We know how to avoid being up front or too forward, and so we'll just always recede so that no one around us is ever put on the spot. So we keep, that's, so we keep our, our conversations to pleasantries. We never really deal with anything serious, you know? Do you, do you know people like that? Well, it's all of us to a certain extent. Right? We keep things to pleasant trees. We don't want to put somebody on the spot. We don't, you know, when we ask them how they're doing, we don't really mean to have an answer. We've, um, we never really say much serious about anything. You know? I think it's one of the, it's one of the tragic parts of modern life is we don't know how to converse with one another. We don't really know how to have serious conversations. And really, I think it's because we're all very hypersensitive. We're, we've been trained to, to, to be victimized instantly by what people say, right? Microaggressions, we call them. You know, and so the idea of having a good, robust fight uh, with words, meh. Reformation would never happen today. Never would have happened. There's way too much sensitivity. And so we avoid saying anything serious. That's the way some of us protect ourselves from accusations that we are pushy or prying. Uh, I've also learned that pastors who avoid prying, pastors now, who avoid prying or asking the hard questions of people, are genuinely revealing their unfaithfulness. I know too well of that myself, that I avoid elephants in the room so as to protect myself. Right? In fact, we convince ourselves that it's loving not to pry. It's it's loving not to ask that second question. It's loving not to do the diagnostic sort of question that might lead to a serious conversation. It's loving to give people space. 
And sometimes it is. But not all the time. Would it have been merciful of Jesus to avoid prying with Peter? Would that have been merciful? Would it have been merciful to Peter to not deal with the anguish of his heart and his denial of, the Lord, of, of him? No, it would not have been merciful. It would not have been kind. It would not have been helpful. It would have been a disaster for the future history of the apostles and the building up of the church if Jesus hadn't asked three questions that put Peter on the spot. I remember the very first pastoral care case I dealt with in my first pastorate up in Toledo. A friend of a member was struggling in the hospital with a brain tumor. He had had surgery. And the doctors were split about whether he would make a recovery after the surgery. Um, It was very clear that he was in a massive amount of pain. Um, as you might expect after an invasive brain surgery. One doctor, maybe it was the surgeon, said it was hopeless. And he would not recover. But another, the neurologist, said, yeah, th- no, there's good signs here. There's some, some, though very small, there's some chance that he could make a recovery. Add to this the fact that this man had just started coming to church. He had just started coming to church. And so we did not have assurance that he was a Christian. We just didn't know. Hadn't had enough time with him. We wanted more time with him. Well, income into the room comes this man's parents in their mid-60s and they, they enter into the situation and the mother sees her son suffering and what does she want to do? End the suffering. She's a mother. She does not want to see her son suffering. And now... Now that presents a gigantic elephant in the room, right? Um, Who is going to ask the prying question? Who has to do it? Well, the pastor has to do it, right? How easy it would have been just to agree with the mother and say, yes, 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 do, that sounds good. You know, do what you you need to do. Put him out of his misery. Begin administering the high doses of morphine. Lower the respiration. Morphine him out. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. There's a time for morphine. But not when there's hope of recovery. Certainly not high doses. The senior pastor of the church engaged with the doctors, this neurologist and the surgeon, much, and much to their astonishment, he told them that hell was real and there were spiritual factors that needed to be considered in this case. They're doctors. They're engineers of the body. It's all body for them. 
And in walk pastors, we say, no, there's, there's a soul here, and hell is real, and there are other factors beyond what you're saying about the physical. Right? And spiritual factors that need to be considered because they, they help determine what is ethical and right and godly. Then, he dispatched me to talk with the parents. I was scared to death. First pastoral care situation of a young pastor. Uh, so, so I was to go up there and, and not so much ask a question, but to deliver a statement. And the statement I was to deliver was, if there is a hope of recovery, general care and treatment must continue. If there is a hope of recovery and you make a decision to withdraw treatment and care and just administer morphine, you are killing your son. And that is precisely what I told those parents who had just, who, you know, we had just met. And they were not members of our church. And they said, well, thank you so much for, for steering us in the right direction. We'll do what you say. Well, they were absolutely incensed. They were so angry. And they did not heed the warning, and they killed their son. They killed him. They murdered their own boy. Now, if I had not gone down there in pride and addressed the elephant in the room, his blood would have been on my hands. But as it is, it's on their hands. His blood is not on my hands. It's on their hands. And, and I don't know what's happened to them. I don't know if they were in a church. I don't know any of that. But I know that they've had to deal with God. Now, how many counseling situations have I been in where over the course of a session it becomes clear that there are questions that need to be asked? Questions that need to be asked, things that need to be addressed, right? And the one who is being counseled is giving you all kinds of signals that there's areas where you just shouldn't go. Don't, don't go there. Don't make this awkward, right? All of us go into self-preservation mode, even lying if we have to, in order to cover up the issues we have, the sins we have committed, or the sins that have been committed against us, right? And, but if we are to care for one another, we must be willing to pry and be willing to be questioned. Remember what the brother of Jesus wrote in, the, in his final verses of the letter he, he wrote. He said, my brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he has turned a sinner from the error of his way and will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. 
What a wonderful thing. And so that is precisely what is exampled for us by these prying questions of Jesus with Peter. Prying into it. You know, just taking... The the first question was painful, and then Jesus goes back two more times and asks him that question about love. And wonderfully, Peter gives us a good example of enduring the examination, doesn't he? An examination that would only do good for his conscience and his future usefulness to Christ. And so remember, when your pastor pries, and trust me, I pull my punches to a sinful degree. I don't do this as much as I ought. I don't do this as tactfully as I ought. But, but listen, when your pastor cries, he's not doing it to embarrass you or cause you pain, or humiliate you. If he does it for those reasons, he's not a good shepherd. He does so because he's called to keep watch over your soul as a man who will give an account before Almighty God. This is part of my judgment that you guys will not face. pastor does the prying because he's called to keep watch over your soul. as a man who will give an account. The pastor is on a watch and he has to make a report one day to God about the watch he kept. Right? If he's acting faithfully, he sees things that you may or may not even see yourself. And if God blesses pastors with spiritual discernment, that really might be true. The pastor has a a task similar to that given by God um, to the prophet Ezekiel. Here he was to be a watchman. You remember that passage from Ezekiel where Ezekiel is called to be a watchman. Let me read a, a section of that to you. And This is Ezekiel 31, the first few verses. And the word of the Lord came to me, to Ezekiel, saying, Son of man, speak to the sons of your people and say to them, If I bring a sword upon a land and the people of the land take one man from among them and make him their watchman, and he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, annoys them with his obnoxious sounds of warnings, Then he who hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning, a sword comes and takes him away, his blood will be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet but did not take warning, his blood will be on himself. But had he taken warning, he would have delivered his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, and the people are not warned, and a sword comes and takes a person from them, He is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require from the watchman's hand. Now as for you, son of man, I have appointed you a watchman for the house of Israel, so you will hear a message from my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, a wicked man, 
you will surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way. That wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require from your hand. But if you on your part warn a wicked man to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, he will die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your life. That watchman, right? That watchman, that, that obnoxious pastor who's, who's compelled to pry. Who's compelled to investigate files on your computer. To pry. So... Brothers and sisters, do not resent the hard things your pastor may say to you at the strangest of times, you know? Train yourself to receive correction in the same manner as Peter. Do you see how Peter responded? He just answered the question, you know I love you. These questions Peter asks, or Jesus asks, are hard. We would say they are even harsh. They are the sort of questions that we have been trained by those who would teach us etiquette never to ask. Do you love me? Do you love me? It's instantly like the manipulation alarms go off. Do you love me? Do you love me? It's it's the kind of question we've been told to never ask our children. It's manipulative, we say. I ask my children this question all the time. I guess I'm a a manipulator. But, dear brothers and sisters, this is the point. It's a penetrating diagnostic. When Jesus goes to Peter and says, do you love me? It penetrates deeply to his core and it diagnoses him, right? Right? It's even absurd to to say this, but there is some method to Jesus' madness here. I mean, there's always method to Jesus. He's God. Peter had denied that he even knew Jesus Christ, right? Three times, and even there it was over a charcoal fire too. Notice the parallels. Is not the elephant in the room Peter's love or lack thereof. That's what's going on here. Does Peter love Jesus? And all those denials, they were publicly stated. I don't know him. I don't... With curses. I'll leave those off this time. And so what does Jesus do? He begins the questioning publicly around the other apostles, seated around that charcoal fire. Public sins should be dealt with publicly. If it had been a private sin, Jesus would have handled it privately. And here is John the apostle whom Jesus loves, recording it all. And if it hadn't happened, if if Jesus hadn't done this publicly, Peter's usefulness and authority would have completely been aborted at that point, and he would not have been an apostle. 
Peter had denied Christ even though he had claimed, you remember this, as John relates to us, that he would lay down his life for Jesus. Do you remember Peter saying that? He had said in Jesus' presence, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. He made a distinction between himself, all the other apostles and himself, and he proclaimed himself the supreme apostle. I, all the others might fall away, never will I. And right after that, after Jesus told Peter that he would betray him three times, do you know what he said? Right after Jesus predicted his betrayal, he said, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you doubles down. So after breakfast, Jesus addresses the elephant in the room. He asks him, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Oh, do you love me more than these? These guys seated around this charcoal fire. Notice that this is a question from Jesus in which it requires Peter to compare himself to the other apostles. It's rather odious, isn't it? Yes, we live our lives, it's funny, we live our lives comparing ourselves to others and generally, generally concluding that everybody else is off. But when we are asked to do it, maybe out loud we're asked to do it, we think it's insanely immodest to have to state any of the judgments that we have already held to for ages, right? We don't want to do it publicly. We don't want to reveal our judgments. Now, why does Jesus ask Peter if he loves him more than the other men love him? Because Peter had made the claim that he was superior to the rest. That's why. Do you really than these? These guys? Peter had made a claim that he was better than the rest. And just read his statement, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Pride comes before a fall. Peter did not know himself. Peter thought way too highly of himself. And that is a plague that all of us face. I often find that it is the shy and diminutive that are most guilty of this kind of pride. Okay, we can't let the shy people always get off scot-free, fly under the radar. Because their pride is really, really nasty. The shy often excessively love themselves and refuse to make commitments to anyone else and their problems. They have a hard time loving Regardless, kind, that, that kind of pride that Jesus is confronting with his question is something we all need to repent of. How many statements is like, I know they might do that, but I would never do that. How many times have we said that? Peter, of course, had been the worst of the apostles. Save Judas, right? He had been the worst of the apostles, 
except for Judas. He had denied Christ three times, even with cursing. His actions betrayed that his thoughts were puffed up with pride. So what is the right answer from Peter to this question? Jesus, do you love me more than these? Should he have said, no, I really don't love you more than these. I betrayed you. But what does he answer? It's like he forgets the comparison. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. (laughs) It's like he moves past the comparison. But again, the goal is not to humiliate or embarrass Peter. It's actually to restore him. It's to build him up. It's to make him useful. It's It's to allow him to flex his muscles as the foremost apostle. So in asking the comparative, I think Jesus is exhorting Peter and the other apostles with him to give up the comparison. One commentator summarized this way, his intention was to bring Peter to a humbled testimony of his love so that he should never again fall into the snare of comparing himself to others in a self-aggrandizing way. In other words, the temptation would be for Peter and for the other apostles to downgrade Peter due to his denials, and Jesus is heading that off. And the answer of Peter is appropriate. He does not say, no, I don't, or yes, I do. Either of those answers would be off the mark. He says, you know that I love you. (laughs) You know it. Now, I want to move back here and, and bring something out of the text that Calvin makes mention of on his commentary on this. And I think this is important for men who are training for ministry, so the next few minutes are for Matt and Mikhail only. The rest of you can go get a coffee. Just kidding. It has applications. Please stay. Matt and Mikhail, though, listen. Here's what Calvin says, a couple, a couple paragraphs of what he says on this these verses as it applies to you and your aspirations. By these words, Christ means that no man, listen, can faithfully serve the church and employ himself in feeding the flock if he does not look higher than to men. First, the office of feeding is in itself laborious and troublesome. Since nothing is more difficult than to keep men under the yoke of God, among whom there are many who are weak, others who are wanton and unsteady, others who are dull and sluggish, and others who are slow and unteachable. Satan now brings forward as many causes of offense as he can, that he may destroy or weaken the courage of a good pastor. In addition to this, we must take into account the ingratitude of many and other causes of disgust. No man, therefore, listen, this is the point. No man, therefore, will steadily persevere in the discharge of this office unless the love of Christ shall reign in his heart. In such a manner that forgetful of himself and devoting himself entirely to Christ, he overcomes every obstacle. Thus, Paul declares this to have been the state of his own feelings when he says the love of Christ constrains us, judging thus that if one died for all, then all must have died. Those who are called to govern the church ought therefore to remember 
that if they are desirous to discharge their office properly and faithfully, they must begin with the love of Christ. And so, brothers and all of us, if you have nothing that is compelling to say about Jesus, if you have nothing to say that's compelling at a, at a, at a prayer meeting, at, uh, at, in the pulpit, if you have nothing compelling to say, you know what the problem is? The problem is, is your love for Christ has grown cold. That's the problem. Yeah, there are obstacles. There are stubborn sheep. There are ignorant sheep. There are unteachable sheep. There are all kinds of obstacles. But the true obstacle, the true thing that will, will throw you off is that you've let your, your love for Christ grow cold. And so think back to the time in your lives when, you're, when your love for Christ burned most fervently and get back there and then excel still more. Right? Get back to the time when you love to go on a walk and commune with God in prayer. Get back to the time when you read the Word of God and it burned in you when you read it. And it cut you up, and it made you weep, and it made you do the happy dance and jump for joy as you considered the promises that God had made to you, right? That love for Christ. And if you have that love for Christ, you will find that you have all kinds of interesting things to say to people when you are charged to teach them and rebuke them and pry into their lives. Keep your love, for, be constrained by the love of Christ. Listen to this, a little more Calvin. Meanwhile, Christ openly testifies how highly he values our salvation when he employs such earnest and striking language in recommending it to pastors. And when, when he declares that if the salvation of their flock be the object of their earnest solicitude, he will reckon it a proof of the ardor of their love to himself. And indeed, nothing could have been spoken that was better fitted for encouraging the ministers of the gospel than to inform them that no service can be more agreeable to Christ than that which is bestowed on feeding his flock. All believers ought to draw from it no ordinary consolation when they are taught that they are so dear and so precious in the sight of the Son of God that he substitutes them, as it were, in his own room. But the same doctrine ought greatly to alarm false teachers who corrupt and overrun the government of the church. For Christ, who declares that he is insulted by them, will inflict on them dreadful punishments. So, dear brothers, the very fact that Jesus questions Peter about what? Love. Jesus questions Peter about love. Suggests that love for Christ will be the main thing that sustains you through the difficulties of ministry through the difficulties of husbanding, through the difficulties of fathering love for Christ, through the difficulties of being a wife and a mother. It holds true for any weight you might carry in your life. If you are not loving Christ, if you are not doing that work for Him and to Him, as unto him, the weight will become unbearable. To carry heavy weights, you must be motivated by heavy love. And there's no more heavy love, more glorious love, right, than the love of your Savior.
and love to your Savior. How then do you stoke the fires of love for Christ? Well, make sure you do not lose your first love. Your love for Christ and his love for you, his rescue of you from your sins, must be the source of your motivation. If it is not, you'll throw in the towel or you will become a hireling who finds his motivation from the money or influence or popularity he can garner by working in the ministry. Is it the love of Christ that constrains you? Or is it the fleecing of the sheep that constrains you? Is it the love of Christ that motivates you? Or is it the praises of the people you aim for? If it is not the love of Christ that animates you to serve Christ's people, you will quit when the sheep rebel or you will become a people pleaser who never pries and asks the second or third question. You just leave people alone. You won't know what your people do or what they love. If you, though, are always pursuing Christ... If the pastor is always himself pursuing Christ fervently in prayer, devotionally reading in his word, living for him with a conscience that's bound by the word, then you, then we will be able to endure the hardship that even the Apostle Paul endured, right? You'll not grow weary, but you'll have your, your strength renewed like, like the eagle, each and every day that you serve the saints. Colossians 3, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. Even everything you do as a pastor is done out of love for Christ, not even the love to the people you're working with. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. So, If you would be a good pastor, you must make sure that your love for Christ grows and deepens over the course of your years. He will make you suffer. But that suffering should only cause you to rely upon him more and love him more for his everlasting loving kindness that called you into his kingdom in the first place. The best pastor is not the pastor who preaches best or who moderates a session best or has a bright smile on his face all the time, or who, you know, expands his sphere of influence electronically, or has the best take on the latest hot topics. Now, the best pastor is simply the man who loves Jesus most fervently. That's it. That's the best dad. That's the best mom. That's the best boss. So study theology. Go through the gauntlet of NGA, but most importantly, grow in your love for Christ. Pursue him as your pearl of great price. Always pray that you would be an example of of speech, conduct, faith, purity, but most of all, love. And yes, love to the saints that falls out from your love toward Jesus Christ. You must above all remember what you have been forgiven yourself. Remember your justification, what you've been forgiven, right? And burn with love for Jesus for what he has done for you through his death. Those, Ryle says, love much who feel much forgiven. 
Your love for Christ will grow as you stand in amazement that Christ made it possible for you to be forgiven, redeemed, purified, justified. Now, as Jesus asked Peter the same or similar questions three times, Peter is made to examine himself more thoroughly. It would have been painful, but each time he says that he loves Jesus and then finally leans on Jesus' omniscience, you know that I love you. Though painful, it is work that had to be done to bring Peter back in his own mind and also in the minds of the onlooking apostles around him and anyone who would pay Peter attention in the future, like us. Right? Reading Peter. You remember the restoration he had. Yes, you remember the not denials, but you remember that love that he had. And so this, is, this, is, this was important for the kingdom, and Jesus knew that. Now, following the question and answer, Jesus says to Peter, Feed my sheep, tend my lambs, shepherd my sheep. That is the antidote of Peter's denial. He now has his threefold restoration, which gave him the blessing of Jesus to go minister to the sheep. Yes, he had denied the Lord three times, yet also he was told by Christ himself three times to go shepherd the sheep. The apostle's mantle was thereby placed upon his shoulders. Notice that the restoration of Peter is accomplished with verbs and not nouns. Jesus does not say, you are again an apostle, you are a minister, you are a pastor, you have office. He points to his task, feed, tend, shepherd. Feed, tend, shepherd, it's verbs. He's to do the work for the sheep. He's not just to point to a degree and demand his office, right? The good shepherd is the one who shepherds good. Barney Fife had the badge, but did not have the action to be a good policeman. And notice that Jesus says that Peter is to tend, feed, shepherd my sheep. The sheep are Christ's, and the minister of the word is simply an under-shepherd who cares for those who are beloved to Christ, those who are owned by Christ, okay? There's no, nothing more convicting to me than one of you prays for me or talks to me and thanks God that we, our church has a good pastor. Oh, kill me. I mean, it kills me when you say that. I'm never more under conviction and feel the weight of rebuke than one of you says something like that. I mean, seriously. Seriously, I'm thankful for it, but I cringe when I hear it. I'm so far from loving you as I ought. I am so far from praying for you as I ought. I am often so wrapped up in my own feelings and my own insecurities that I don't pry and I don't tend and I don't properly shepherd. And I'm not saying these things so that you'll come up to me afterward and tell me not to be so hard on myself. You only know a fraction of my failures. You don't hear my inner dialogue. You don't understand my utter lack of faith at times. 
I just mention it here to say that what Jesus said to Peter applies to every minister since that time. We must love Christ and from that love shepherd the sheep. That's the task. Ryle, let us aim at a loving, doing, useful, hardworking, unselfish, kind, unpretentious religion. Let it be our daily desire to think of others, care for others, do good to others, and to lessen the sorrow. Listen to that. To lessen the sorrow and increase the joy of this sinful world. That's the goal. I may have a reputation in Evangel Presbytery as being a hard worker. But it means nothing if I do it for any reason other than the love of Christ. You know? And hard working is not the measure of a faithful pastor. Not at all. The measure of the faithful pastor is love toward Christ. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor and I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. So pray that your shepherd may grow in his love. That your shepherds may grow in their love above everything else. And may that be true of all of us. Do not lose your first love. Stoke, stoke the flames of that love for your Savior. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the love of Christ. Lord, we ask that you would increase our love, that you would enlarge our hearts, that you would give us the capacity that we never even thought possible in all of our insecurity and shyness to be able to love others and love you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.